Confidential gets started right after this message. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Last November, the world gathered at COP26 against a fractured and fractious geopolitics. This world looks still too much like it did when it was part of an imperialistic empire. We need to reach the Paris goals and Europe is staying the course. We, will... we are all here today because we continue to use the thin blue shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet as an open sewer. The world's biggest climate gathering is underway. Leaders from around the globe are gathering in Egypt for this year's UN Climate Change Conference, COP27. It's been exactly a year since the last climate conference in Glasgow, but the world now looks very different. A war on the European continent, rising inflation and energy concerns are topping everyone's agenda. So the question is, will progress on climate goals take a back seat in this new environment or will it still be possible for the UN process to make an impact? I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent, Today, we'll be going directly to Sharm el-Sheikh to speak to our political colleagues on the ground who are covering COP27 there. And you'll hear exclusively from Alok Sharma, the UK's COP26 president and one of the leading global voices on climate change. So I think, you know, politics on both sides of the spectrum can be polarising, can have a negative impact when it comes to dealing with addressing this climate emergency. But... What you have seen, despite that, that uh, you know, we are still making progress. Finally, we'll turn to the war in Ukraine and current debates about NATO, the West and Russia's role in the world. We have an interview with Mary Sorotti, a professor, historian and author of the book Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. The previous Cold War unfolded over decades and there was time for both a public awareness of the risks of the Cold War to develop and also for guardrails to go up. These new Cold War-like conditions that we have have spun up so quickly, there has not been time either for a public awareness to develop to the same extent or for guardrails to go back up. First, we're going to speak to our colleague Carl Matheson, senior climate correspondent and calling in currently from the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh. Hi, Carl. Hi, Suzanne. How are you holding up there? I'm reading reports of hungry journalists and attendees and 
the uh, conference running out of water and all these kind of stories. Can you can you tell us what the situation is like there at the COP27 conference? Well, you know, never be the story, Suzanne. But um, <laughs> honestly, I to, to be fair to our hosts, I just had a lovely kebab with some tabbouleh. So I'm well fed. Okay, that's good to hear. Look, on a more serious note, Carl, uh, COP, it's an extremely important climate conference this year, as we say, taking place in Egypt. And it's one of the the few times global leaders get the time to get together and talk about climate. So, Carl, what are we expecting from this year's COP? It it doesn't seem to have the same kind of profile as as we remember a year ago with Glasgow. Yeah, that's part of the natural UN climate cycle. They usually come about these sort of big decisive COPs once every five years and that's just to bring a a point of real energy every five years where they try and really jump things forward and in between that there's a lot of preparation, piecemeal negotiations. That's not to say that there's not important discussions being had and one of the main things that's going to come up again and again through the next two weeks is this discussion about who's going to pay for the damage done by climate change in the developing world and there's a a discussion about the creation of a new fund for doing that that's being pushed forward by a lot of the vulnerable countries and developing countries and saying that you know, the rich countries, they're responsible for the majority of the carbon that's in the atmosphere. So they should pony up and actually pay for the consequences. And for the first time, that discussion is really taking centre stage in these talks. Mm. I mean, you spoke about climate finance, but what about the targets that these big emitters set themselves? I mean, where do things stand there? Yeah, that's a really good question because the Glasgow climate talks finished with a promise to return within the next year with new pledges, but with an important caveat, if necessary. Um, and that was up to the countries themselves to decide if they really needed to do that. And 170 countries out of nearly 200 ignored that promise. Um, so we really haven't moved that much forward. Interesting, Carl. What about Europe in particular and the European Union? Has there been a new pressure now on the EU in terms of its climate targets because of the war in Ukraine. Now it's all about diversifying energy. Um, and has the climate agenda kind of taken a back seat for the European Union? I think the EU has a bit of a PR problem here because of how it's responding to the energy crisis. By necessity, uh, a lot of EU countries have ramped up their coal consumption. And I think that has been taken out of proportion a little bit by some of the other countries. So I think the Europeans are getting a lot of heat about that. And the European response is, look, we're still phasing out coal. We just need to ramp up our consumption in the next year or so just to deal with this immediate crisis. But the long-term trajectory is the same one. The other big question that the Europeans are getting is, of course, about how they're, on the one hand, discouraging developing countries from developing any type of fossil fuel infrastructure while simultaneously a lot of European leaders are chasing gas supply from the same countries. So there's lots and lots of confusing signals coming out of the EU because of the present energy crisis. I thought one of the most interesting things over the last couple of days was Ursula von der Leyen effectively using this as a clean energy supermarket. This whole energy demand that was once from Russia is now shifting, if we do it right, into the global south. 
And she was doing deals left, right and centre on sustainable forestry supplies, on uh, critical mineral supplies, on hydrogen, green hydrogen. During this COP, we're signing hydrogen, um, uh, hydrogen partnerships with Egypt, with Kazakhstan, with Namibia, for example. And very That's, I think, one of the most interesting things that we've seen here. And I think going forward, this UN process every year is going to be more and more of that countries trying to do deals to boost their own clean economies. One of the things that von der Leyen was taking advantage of was that her two biggest competitors for global supply chains weren't present at the conference. The two leaders, Xi Jinping of China, decided not to come for his own reasons. And then Joe Biden, the president of the USA, was delayed because of the US midterm. So he turns up on Friday, but there won't be many leaders here to cut deals with by then. You also sat down with Alok Sharma in the days leading up to COP. Um, Now, people might be familiar with his name from last year's COP26 in Glasgow. But tell us a bit more about him and why he is significant in this COP27 discussion. So Alok Sharma has played this quite important role over the past few years, actually, because the UK had this long extended presidency because of the pandemic and I think he's pretty been pretty well regarded he his role formally ended on Sunday when he handed over to the Egyptian presidency um, the Egyptian foreign minister Samir Shukri is the new UN climate president what was really interesting about my conversation with Sharma was I remember talking to him at the beginning of his presidency and he wasn't a climate guy first he started out in banking then he became a Tory MP, never really had a role in climate policy until he became business secretary. And then he got tapped by Boris Johnson for this job. And he was pretty wet behind the ears, and I think um, he would admit. I'd never been to a cop, and I think it was a very steep learning curve. Mm. And It's been a big experience. I remember talking to him at the beginning of his presidency, and I said to him, do you think you're going to get the bug? And he's most definitely got the bug, I would say. And you asked him, what are the biggest threats with leaders coming here for this conference? Well, the the biggest threat is that countries and and companies don't follow through on the commitments that they've made. I mean, I still look back on Glasgow and what we achieved was historic. And going into Glasgow, I think many people were very sceptical whether we would get any real progress at all. And yet we did. You know, we managed to get... 90% 90% of the world signed up to net zero targets. We closed off the Paris rule book. We made progress on finance, on you know, adaptation, on loss and damage. And we had a significant number of corporates, companies coming together and making commitments as well. So what we got over the line was historic. But I, I said at, at the time in, in Glasgow that you know, the pulse of 1.5 was weak. I would say, however, that uh, this is a fragile win. And... We have kept 1.5 alive. That was our overarching objective when we set off on this journey two years ago, taking on the role of the COP presidency designate. But I would still say that um, the pulse of 1.5 is weak. And the only way you strengthen that is actually to deliver on the commitments. And that's what this year has been all about, uh, driving forward and getting countries uh, particularly to deliver on their commitments. Um, That, for me, is the biggest challenge. 
I asked him about the broader political context that we're in, where we've seen, uh, in particular, a, f- a rise of populist and far-right parties across the spectrum, uh, across the world in uh, Europe, but also we've just come out of the Bolsonaro presidency in Brazil. And there's now some green advocates saying that this is a real threat to progress on climate change. And even within, frankly, his own conservative party, there are elements of this of this idea. So I just asked him, look, do you consider populist politics to be one of the biggest threats that the climate movement faces? So I think, you know, politics on both sides of the spectrum can be polarising, can have a negative impact when it comes to dealing with addressing this climate emergency. But what you have seen, despite that, that, uh, you know, we are still making progress. And yes, I mean, the the politics can be polarising, there are issues about not enough money uh, reaching uh, climate action. Then you have you know, horrific events like Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. You know, all of this makes it difficult. And, and you know, every day is a fight. Every day is a fight in terms of dealing with this issue and, and tackling it. But nevertheless, despite all of this, we still manage to get from less than 30% of the global economy covered by a net zero target when we took on organising COP26 to over 90%. And, you know, I've said this before, but I think that is very much driven by the fact that countries understand that it is in their own self-interest to deal collectively with this issue. And also he spoke about the impact of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I would say that the whole context for the COP is dictated by multiple crises, including the war. So that's a really important one for him and the rest of the climate people to try and cope with. Actually, one of the big responses that has come to Putin's war in Ukraine is countries understanding that at the end of the day, climate and environmental security are totally interlinked with energy and and indeed national security. And that's why you need to accelerate the push on homegrown uh, clean energy. And you're seeing that. I mean, we're seeing that in the UK. You're seeing that uh, across Europe and other parts of the world as well. And of course, we've been talking a lot about these world leaders gathering in Egypt. But there's also the question of the business side. What role corporations can play in the whole climate agenda? What did Sharma have to say about that? Well, I think he's picking up. He was picking up on something that's really happening here. You see it at COP that the politics is almost taking a back seat these days. There's a huge um, section of this vast campus that I'm sitting in the middle of that's completely dominated by kind of business activities and meetings and that really have nothing to do with the negotiated outcomes or the political figures. So he's picking up on the fact that the business sector is actually livening up to this and taking it maybe faster than the politics. What has been brilliant is that the corporate sector has really taken to heart this move to net zero. And they're, they're not doing it, you know, just because they are all um, terribly altruistic or, or woke, uh, to use a, another term. Um, they're doing this because they understand this is what clients and customers want, and they understand this is good for the bottom line uh, as well. So if you do that, then I think the onus is on you to set out how you're going to get a net zero and how you're going to do that on science-based targets. And actually, the more companies, the more financial institutions do that, the more confidence the public has that these commitments are real. One of the themes of this conference has not been just about climate change, but it's been about Egypt itself and its own humanitarian record coming under scrutiny. Um, Can you tell us more about that, Carl? Yeah, 
multiple human rights organisations raise concerns about uh, Egypt's government and its repression of political activists and journalists and really basic freedoms uh, coming into this conference. And that has been focused remarkably and painfully by a single case, the case of a British-Egyptian activist and journalist called Abdel El Fattah, who is in a Egyptian prison at the moment and is has been on hunger strike for months. But on the first day of COP27, he decided to stop drinking water, which obviously means that his life is in great jeopardy. The British government has been asking the Egyptians for help and also or have been demanding that the Egyptians release him but also they've been getting a lot of help from the Europeans so Olaf Scholz raised this in a bilateral meeting with Egyptian President Sisi there's been lots and lots of backroom bilateral meetings and remarkably also his sister who I think lives in Britain has flown into COP27 on a civil society badge and is hosting events, press conferences around the COP, campaigning for her brother's life and freedom. As Alat's sister, I'm really, really thankful to the German government and to Chancellor Scholz for raising this case, for breaking the silence as a sister. But as an Egyptian, you, you really need to address your foreign policy with Egypt, especially in and foreign. And then on Thursday, I spoke to Al Fattah's cousin, Omar Hamilton, who's in Britain, who told me that actually about an hour before a prison officer had told his mother that the Egyptian authorities had medically intervened and I assumed to keep him alive. So that was the first proof of life that the family had had and obviously means his condition is not good. Meanwhile, the diplomacy increases and intensifies as Joe Biden flies in, the US president, who has also said that he'll raise this with El Sisi. And Hamilton, the cousin, said, quote, everything sort of hinges on what Biden does or doesn't do in the three hours that he's there. So the family are really pinning their hopes on Joe Biden. And I asked... Egypt's special representative to the COP27 president, while Abdul Mag, if Egypt wanted to respond to the criticisms that they've received and how they felt that this was affecting their image on the global stage. It is an issue that has multiple challenge channels to be dealt with. Um, there are open channels, of course, between Egypt and the United Kingdom dealing with it. When it was brought to our attention, the Human Rights Commissioner issued a statement we engaged directly and gave a full explanation to many of the allegations that were made. Uh, but at the same time, while it is an important issue and it is being discussed elsewhere, and it's being discussed here, through there was a press conference yesterday and an event in the evening, and that's part of free speech, people bringing all issues, we don't want to lose focus on the climate catastrophe that is killing people around the world and we need to come together once a year to show commitment to this issue. So while we acknowledge that and are aware of the situation and are engaging in it in multiple, on it, on, in multiple fora, we would also like to be allowed to focus on the real catastrophe that brought 120 heads of state and 30,000, 40,000 people to address another is it, is it worrying, though, for the government about the image that the world is getting 
so from I think, this discussion? Uh, well, I think people see that uh, we've put in place what the best we ca- could as a developing country uh, to prepare a, a venue to bring people together to succeed in adopting the agenda and moving forward on very important matters. So, so far, I think our record is going well, both on the side of adopting an agenda that no one ever before was able to adopt, and at the same time bringing 120 heads of state to discuss matters in an open manner. And we'll continue to do that until we have a positive outcome. So this is the best thing we can do. Fascinating stuff, Carl, and thank you very much for that insight and those reports from COP27. We'll be sure to keep following your reporting on politico.eu over the next week or so. Thanks, Suzanne. I really appreciate you having me on. Coming up is Professor Mary Sorotti in conversation about Russia's relationship with NATO and the West. Stay with us. to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Mary Sorotti is a historian and distinguished professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And currently, she's a visiting fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. And it's in Berlin where her colleague Matt Kernichnik caught up with her to discuss Russian President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Professor Sorotti, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. I'd like to start with the subject of your book, which is NATO and the end of the Cold War and everything that has happened since, which is obviously a very broad subject. But there's been a lot of speculation recently in view of everything that's going on in the Ukraine about whether we're entering a new Cold War. And I think you have some very strong opinions on on that subject. Are we in a new Cold War? Right. Well, first of all, honored to be here and to have a chance to speak to your listenership on this great podcast. Yeah. Are we entering a new Cold War? It's hard to give a simple answer to that question. There are obviously some things that are very different about our current situation. For example, the role of China, right? The Cold War was largely a bipolar thermonuclear standoff, at least at the elite political level. Obviously, there was a bunch of things happening uh, among other countries, but the classic Cold War is the nuclear standoff between Moscow and Washington. 
the world no longer has a bipolar character like that if it ever truly did. China is obviously a huge player. India is obviously a huge player. Another big difference is the role of ideology. This is not a conflict now with Putin about communism versus capitalism. Right? Putin is not trying to restore communism. I could list several other differences. So it's important to bear all of those in mind. They're all valid. And yet what we are seeing is very much familiar. Right? We're seeing nuclear threats between Moscow and Washington. We're seeing Russian tanks rolling across borders. We're talking about you know, the possibility of a major conflict between Russia and NATO. All of that is familiar. Fortunately, we have the experience of the Cold War. We got through it. Hopefully, as a historian, I hope we can learn from that experience and get through this crisis as well. I think for those of us who grew up in the Cold War, it does seem quite familiar in many respects. But maybe for a younger generation that didn't grow up during that time, it's sort of new territory. And I think one of the questions that a lot of people are wondering in Europe right now is how strong the American commitment will be to NATO and to Ukraine going forward. As we record this, there are midterm elections on the horizon in the U.S. What is your view of America's commitment to NATO? Well, let me say uh, before I answer your question by way of background, I was studying abroad in West Berlin in 1989. So these are events that I remember personally. But I know exactly as you said that for many younger people, they're ancient history. So in my teaching, I try to bring across the sense of hope and optimism that occurred in 1989 after the thermonuclear conflict ended without violence. It's quite sad to me personally that that moment of optimism is, is gone. So as you said, we're now in a new situation. There's once again war in Europe. And the question you asked is exactly the right one. To what extent will the West writ large hold together in response to Russian aggression? I'm cautiously optimistic that Western unity will persist beyond the US midterm elections into what will be, uh, I hope, a cold but not unbearable winter in Europe. I am of the opinion that the unity will persist. There seems to have been such a fundamental rethinking of attitudes towards Moscow. I'm cautiously optimistic the unity will persist, but obviously time will tell. But do you think most Americans understand the commitments the country has made through Article 5 through NATO to its allies, what, what that actually means, what it could mean? Yeah. As someone who works on the history of NATO, I'm often finding myself in conversation with people who don't really understand what that means. Obviously, NATO has been around for over 70 years. Before the current war, it had faded to the background of discussions in the United States. There is not the same level of awareness of Article 5 that there was during the Cold War. Briefly, for your listeners, Article 5 is the heart of the North Atlantic Treaty. It's the article that says all member states should treat an attack on any one member as an attack on all of them. That's a very strong security guarantee. And we, the United States, 
as a member of NATO, together with the other members of NATO, has extended that Article 5 to a total of 30 countries. And many Americans, I think, are not fully aware of that commitment that already exists. So you're right to point out that there isn't the same level of public awareness. I think that's another big difference, to go back to your earlier question, between the previous Cold War and what's coming now. The previous Cold War unfolded over decades, and there was time for both a public awareness of the risks of the Cold War to develop and also for guardrails to go up. By guardrails, I mean arms control agreements, among other things. These new Cold War-like conditions that we have have spun up so quickly, there has not been time either for a public awareness to develop to the same extent or for guardrails to go back up. As a matter of fact, there's currently only one nuclear treaty that binds Moscow and Washington. It is due to expire in a couple of years. It could be renewed, but I doubt very much it will be renewed. And then the nuclear competition between Washington and Moscow will be completely unconstrained. That's different than the end of the last Cold War. Another thing that one living in Germany, I think, notices, especially as a foreigner, is that there's a lot of mythology around the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, what led to it. In your book, you've researched this in a lot of detail, and I, I recommend the book to anybody who's, who's interested in this period. It's called Not One Inch, America, Russia, and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. And I wanted to maybe just ask you if you could explain to us why you decided to title the book Not One Inch, because that's it's a quote and it's a quite a, a significant quote. Yeah, the title actually has a twofold meaning. The first meaning comes from the year 1990. There is a huge controversy over whether or not NATO promised Gorbachev that in exchange for his approval of German unification, which he had to give as one of the four occupying powers – in Germany, still, all those years later after 1945, Germany had surrendered unconditionally. And so in order for it to unify, Moscow had to give up both its legal rights over Germany and its troops there. So the first time the phrase comes up is in 1990, where there's a discussion, a speculative discussion, between the U.S. Secretary of State James Baker and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev about the possibility that in exchange for German unification, NATO would agree to move not one inch eastward. That conversation happens that I can show, document multiple ways. So it definitely comes up. It definitely is spoken. It's not a myth. The problem for Putin, who likes to point to that now and say, look, we were betrayed. We had a promise, not one inch. They betrayed us. That's why I'm justified in doing what I'm doing. I'm not agreeing with Putin. I'm just summarizing his view, right? The problem for Putin is what got signed at the end, the 2 plus 4 agreement. That's the final settlement on Germany, the document where the occupying powers gave up their rights in Germany and allowed it to unify. And by the, by the time the negotiations had gotten to the signing, Gorbachev had given up on the idea of trying to get a binding promise that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. He had tried. He could not get it. And so instead, he shifted his focus to financial remuneration for letting Germany unify. And that did the trick. And uh, in September 1990, Moscow signed the final settlement on German unification and then subsequently ratified it and cashed the check. And in that final settlement, NATO is explicitly allowed to extend Article 5 beyond the Cold War front line by extending it into East Germany. 
So the first post-Cold War expansion of NATO happens on October 3rd, 1990, the day that Germany unifies. So Putin, when he says, look, we were betrayed, he's referring to this earlier speculative conversation in February 1990 where not one inch comes up. He forgets entirely that his country signed and ratified a legal document along the opposite. So that's the first meaning of not one inch. But I decided it was appropriate as a title for the whole book because of a second reason. So fast forward into the era of President Bill Clinton and his primary Russia advisor and old friend and fellow Rhodes Scholar Strobe Talbot. There was a big question, which is, how do we enlarge NATO? I personally am not an opponent of NATO enlargement. I think Central and Eastern Europeans had every right to want to be in NATO. They had bravely thrown off Soviet authoritarianism. They were new democracies. They were becoming market economies. They shared the values of the West. They had every right to try to get into NATO, and NATO had every right to take them on. The problem was how that process happened. And if there's one big takeaway from the book, it's that NATO enlargement was not one thing. There were multiple methods of expanding NATO known at the time, proposed to President Clinton, proposed to other leaders. And the United States decided on what I referred to as the not one inch approach, but it's not one inch in the opposite sense, meaning not one inch of Europe will be off limits to NATO. We're going to have NATO enlargement unfold as an iterative process with no clear ending. This was in contrast to, for example, the Brits, who pushed hard in the 90s for the complete opposite approach. The Brits said, you know, Russia is not always going to be as weak as it is now. So what we should do is we should right now in about 1995, 96, we should have one massive round of enlargement, get every possible country in and then call it quits because it's just going to get – it's going to create too much friction with Russia if we keep expanding. And the Americans pushed back and said, no, that's the exact wrong procedure. We need to do exactly the opposite. We need to do a tiny bit of expansion first with as few countries as possible to show that we're going to keep going and that not one inch will be off limits to NATO. So that's why I decided to use the title, which you've perceptively picked up on, because it applies in an opposite sense to both parts of the story of NATO enlargement. I thought we could close by maybe looking a little bit forward. And, you know, the, the, the war obviously has not gone the way that Putin had anticipated. In, fortunately. Fortunately, in, in various ways. As a scholar of the Cold War and, and of, of Russia uh, today, what do you think his options are? What, what are sort of the scenarios that you see uh, on the horizon here for President Putin and Russia? Yeah, none good, sadly. You know, the short answer is I don't know. The longer answer is, can there be some kind of negotiated peace that both Zelensky and Putin could live with? I don't know. I was attending a conference last week, and there were Ukrainian representatives there, and they said their response to the latest horrific bombings has just been cold fury. Allow me to express my admiration for the Ukrainians and how bravely they are fighting and how awful it is that they have to suffer in the way that they are suffering. Uh, so the Ukrainians said, quite understandably, now we won't accept anything other than the borders of 1991. And I can certainly understand that feeling. Some of the other Europeans at the conference, however, were saying, well, what if there was a negotiated peace where you got back the territory before, from before February 24th, 2022? I don't know how that story ends, but I think that's where the conflict is going to be. Do you think Putin will drop the nuclear bomb? 
Yeah, obviously that's the huge question. I'm worried as you and I are recording, He's he and his advisors have been talking in recent days about Ukraine reportedly using a radiological bomb. In other words, not a classical nuclear weapon, but something with radioactive material that dirty would, bomb. You know, pollute a certain amount of area, right? So not and obviously Putin has a track record of saying the Ukrainians are about to do what he is planning on doing himself. So that is very dangerous. I think it's, you know, probably still more unlikely than likely, but even a small possibility of something catastrophic happening is too much. I am very worried about that. I believe there will be a series of steps that lead up to a nuclear exchange, which I fervently hope does not happen. But I, I don't think that he'll just tomorrow launch a strategic nuclear attack on the United States. I think it would start with, if it happens, with something like a dirty bomb, a radiological bomb, or a tactical nuclear weapon. And he would then see how the West would respond and then decide whether to go further. That would obviously be deeply, deeply tragic if that happened. More than 30 years after the end of the Cold War, Washington and Moscow still control 90% of the world's nuclear warheads. They're the only countries on Earth that have civilization-ending capabilities, and we've lost awareness of that at the popular level. So we need to do everything possible to avoid escalation while still supporting Ukrainians. And so that's really the challenge of our times now. Professor Sarati, thank you very much for joining us today. Sure, honored to be here. And that's it for this episode. Be sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you never miss our episodes each and every Thursday. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to suggest guests or topics, you can email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to our colleague Sadair Denis for his help arranging the interview in Berlin, to our editor James Randerson and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thank you for listening. 